Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast brought to you by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues which impact on stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. I'm Michelle Hinchliffe and I'm your host for today. And in this episode, we'll be exploring the area of corporate governance and specifically whether UK corporate governance practices, which are recognised globally as being of a very high standard, are as tight and as transparent as they should be. I have two guests who are experts in this area joining me for today's discussion, David Stiles and Peter Swaby. And I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. David, if you could go first. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm David Stiles. I'm Director of Corporate Governance and Stewardship at the uh, Financial Reporting Council. And very briefly, that means that my team and I are responsible for the UK Corporate Governance Code, the Stewardship Code, which is an investor code, and also the Weights Principles, which are a set of principles for corporate governance in large private companies. Thank you, David. And Peter? I'm Peter Swaby. I'm the Policy and Research Director at the Chartered Governance Institute. And I suppose that means my responsibilities are liaising with government, liaising with people like David, um, giving the, the institutes feedback on the various, um, the various codes and the various other publications that are, that are produced. Thank you very much. Now, David, we're going to jump straight into it with a question for yourself, um, if that's okay. And if I look over the last 18 months or so, the FRC have issued a number of reports commenting on the quality of UK corporate governance reporting. So perhaps from your perspective, if you could give us an overview of, of what some of the key areas are where improvements are needed. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, um, well, there's always improvement needed. Um, I think we should acknowledge at the outset that um, corporate governance practices and corporate governance reporting um, is of a good standard in, in the UK. Um, but as I always say, that is no reason for complacency. Um, we're not without our problems. Um, uh, we're not without our corporate failures. Uh, and perhaps later on, we'll talk about the, the progress that's been made uh, in terms of uh, corporate governance reforms in, in, in the UK. Um, but we do start off from a good um, base. And as you mentioned in your introduction, um, the UK is, is well known for its high standards and generally speaking, uh, good reporting on, on those standards. Now, where's improvement needed? Well, one of the things that we've introduced into the code, uh, uh, the last iteration of the code 2018, in which we've been uh, checking on, is this link between environmental and social elements um, and matters that directors have to consider, uh, and the governance, as I, we, we all refer to ESG. I mean, as I remind people, the G has been there for a long, long time, and it's something that, uh, that we consider obviously extremely important, and it's at the heart, at heart of the code. And one of the things that we introduced in the code uh, was that uh, with the relationship with uh, the famous or infamous uh, Section 172 of the Companies Act, which sets out that the director's duty is to uh, promote the success of the company and the matters that directors have to take into account in delivering that duty. Now, we're not asking uh, uh, companies in the code to, to replicate narrative reporting around 172, but we are asking companies to look at those matters which directors have to consider under Section 172, uh, the environment, good business reputation, consumers' uh, 
competition and those those sorts of aspects and how the board considers those those issues and this is we're at an early stage i think in the uk i think we've we've taken a a bit of a leap forward here where we're ahead of the game when it comes to uh, these this type of governance disclosure um and we're still waiting to see reporting which looks at the way in which the board has considered these factors and the way that in translates into the integrity uh, and, and good decision making. So that's that's an area for, for improvement. I'll, I'll say one more thing on this. So that, so that I, I picked on one particular sectional area there. Um, there still is a tendency, I have to say, for companies to treat the code reporting as a compliance exercise. Now, to a certain extent, I understand that it is, but I'm thinking about compliance with a big C here. Uh, it's not a tick box exercise. Um, it is a complier explain code. And earlier on in the year, you referred to some of the publications that we put out. Uh, we did put out a publication which was about how what a good explanation ent ent entails. Uh, and essentially, um, we build that around um, what we what we think of in terms of activities uh, and outcomes and delivery. So where a company departs from one of the detailed provisions in, in the code, um, a good quality explanation uh, will explain uh, what actions the company took uh, and what were the outcomes of those actions that actually delivered good governance just for, for the company, for its shareholders and for stakeholders as well. And we still have some way to go um, in, in that process. Th th thanks, David. So, um, so you've highlighted very helpfully some areas, Section 172 reporting, um, ESG, really the board's getting very practical and talking around outcomes and actions. Um, so sounds like they're doing okay, but maybe as you said earlier, a little bit more to do, some further improvements. Um, Peter, would you agree with David's critique there? Yes, I would. I mean, one of the things that the, the Institute does every year is um, awards for good quality reporting, and David, and David and his team very kindly help us with some of the judging on those. And I think one of the things that always strikes me and has struck me consistently over the last few years is firstly that reporting is improving, um, companies are getting better at it, um, but that there is always scope to do more. There are always some companies who, when you when you look through their annual report, there are sections that if you crossed out the company name, it kind of could apply to any company out there, sort of boilerplate, boilerplate things that are in there. There are some companies that do that do really well. If I'm a, if I'm allowed a plug, Michelle, then you know, sort of the winner of our stakeholder disclosure of the year um, this year was Seven Trend. Um, so if anybody's looking for an example, that might be one to have a look at. There are others out there that the, the judges thought that one was was sort of particularly good. Um, and I think it's it's that sort of thing. It's it, it's some of the things like viability and going concern statements, which David's talked about in, in a number of documents from the FRC. They're generally there. They generally cover what they need to cover. But I always think that annual reporting is an opportunity for the company to tell its story. If you're, if you're producing something that um, by simply changing the name could apply to another company, I don't think you're really telling your story. 
One of the advantages that we have in, in our system is the Complier Explain model, which I think is enormously helpful in giving companies the opportunity to look at the code, um, to look at the requirements of the code, and if they're not quite complying with it, don't just say, yeah, we're there or thereabouts, we comply. Explain what your differences are. Explain why you're doing something differently. Explain why doing something differently is the right answer for you. That's actually a lot more insightful for your stakeholders. Um, but actually, I think also the, the process of thinking about it is really useful for you as an organization. Some really helpful advice. Thank you, Peter, in terms of um, and, and actually very consistent with David, the need to tell the story, don't make these boilerplate. Um, but can I ask, I mean, these reports and, and the, the, the disclosures are, are becoming very long and very detailed. Um, what advice or, or what can boards and company secretaries do to respond to some of these challenges? I think don't feel the... Don't feel the urge to tick every single box. Give, you know, give your story. Talk about what you're doing. There are certain things which you are obliged by legislation or regulation to say, and of course you've got to do that. But th there are there are some organisations who that there, there's too much filler uh, sometimes. So I think you can shorten it. I think it would be enormously helpful, and I, I can say this whereas David probably can't, it would be enormously helpful if some of the regulations weren't quite so prescriptive about some of the detail that has to go in. Um, have to admit one of my least favourite categories in, in the awards is the remuneration reporting, um, largely because there is just such a lot of, uh, of information there, which is, which is really for a very, very specialist minority. And what is interesting for me is the remuneration committee's report. So the, the section where they're actually talking about what they're doing and what they're thinking about. And for me, that's far more important than a load of tables, which, you know, to my mind, don't really add a whole lot of value. Great, thank you. So David, I'm going to come back to you and maybe look at a particular segment, which is large private companies. So with the introduction of some new regulations back in 2018, um, these corporate governance disclosures are no longer the preserve of companies on the main market. Large private companies now have to report against the code or describe their own governance practices. So in your view, how have these large private companies responded to this new reporting challenge? I think they've done pretty well. And um, yes, you made it clear. I mean, there's a requirement for large private companies to, to make a governance statement. Now, they either do that by complying or explaining against a code uh, they uh, or they can write their own uh, governance statement, or they can use um, the Waits principles, which is something that uh, Sir James Waits developed with his committee, and which we're members of that committee, and we support support the committee. We're actually undertaking some research on um, the Waits uh, disclosures. Um, uh, unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to say too much. A minute because they will be coming out. Um, the, the report on that will be coming out uh, later this year or perhaps in the beginning of, of next year. But I think I can indicate that that large private companies, on the whole, um, have done have done pretty well on this. And of course, what you've got to remember is that the weights uh, principles are are even more flexible because they have to account for a, um, 
a much wider range of of, of activity, or, or should I say, the way in which these companies are, are are put together. So we have to expect different type of reporting. Um, these are not companies with fragmented and dispersed ownership. Uh, they are they are companies which are closely held, and so they have to think about governance in a different way. And they are in a, a number of different different sectors. But again, the flexibility is there, and as Peter has, has pointed out. Um, it's a question of using that flexibility and saying um, why your company is different. It, it may be the sector you're in, it may be your size, it may be your stage of development. It could be a number of, it, it could be the, the ownership structure, it could be a number of things. Um, but it's a question of actually using the flexibility that are there to tell, to tell something specific to your company. And on the whole, we're seeing some, some good quality reporting from, from private companies that we didn't see, we didn't see before. And Debbie, maybe if we could go beyond the reporting, so which is great in terms of if you are seeing improvements there, but do you think this is driving actually driving up the corporate uh, governance standards or the governance standards that are in place within these entities? So it's more than just the reporting. I think it's more. It is more than just the reporting. I always try and say, and maybe I haven't done it so far, is that when I talk about reporting, I also talk about practices as well. Um, you, you know, there is a mantra that what gets reported gets done. But but as as Peter has, has said, um, what gets reported on should start a thinking process. Sure. So if you if you look at what's happened over the past uh, two two years, uh, the challenges which companies uh, and in fact investors have had to have faced, and it but but in particular we're talking about companies, and in particular. Um, the, the relationship with a wide range of, of, st of stakeholders, uh, in particular the work the workforce, and of course that's a, that was a new introduction to the code two, two years ago, um, recommending that the board interacts with the workforce and that the, there's a feedback loop there. So so it's a question of of using flexibility and comply or, or explain as a thinking process to get through to thinking about what's right for your company in terms in terms of its governance and we've seen that in some of the reporting um this year um about uh, engagement with stakeholders and in particular with the workforce and in particular uh, with the challenges and the problems that companies have faced over the last two years that's that's great, and it's, it's good to see that, that these improvements are, are, are transparent, we, and that across the industry, and certainly we can see things um, improvements coming through. Um, I'm going to maybe change tack a little bit now, Peter, and and take stock, I guess, of where we're at now, and perhaps look a little bit to to the future. I mean, and it's hard to think it was 30 years ago that Sir Adrian Cabri's, um, I guess, uh, his his work has led to the Corporate Governance Code and the introduction of the um, comply or explain approach, which we've already spoken about. So I think everyone regarded or regards that as a as a massive step forward um, and a great start, but you know, has, has that plateaued a little bit? Um, and is, do you think that with the introduction of Arga, it will give us, you know, uh, some uh, a new drive to look for even further improvements? So maybe if you could take us through your thoughts around the way forward. Yeah, um, I think the I think the introduction of Arga is is a really good thing. Um, the the FRC has had some quite limited powers around some of these things in the past, and I think giving them the the opportunity to to sort of do more do more than sort of encourage um, occasionally will be will be quite useful. 
Um, in terms of in terms of plateauing, I, I don't think we've seen a plateau at all. I think there has been a continual um, drive for new um, standards in governance, for new governance reporting. Um, as I said earlier, I sometimes I sometimes think that that some of that is a little too detailed. But yeah, it, I think it's good to see that. One of the challenges we're constantly seeing um, from the investor side is, you know, sort of requests for new things to be to be reported. Requ yeah, particularly particularly recently about some of the ESG and climate change issues. There's a much greater appetite for for reporting on the governance around that and and what what companies are doing certainly than there was 30 years ago. So I don't think it's plateaued at all. I think it's continually evolving, and I think that's that's one of the strengths of the of the way in which we have investors investors talking to companies about what they'd like. It's one of the strengths that I see from the financial reporting lab at the FRC. Um, companies talking about well, you know, sort of what what makes sense for them to report in terms of of what is important to them. David and his team's regular updates of the code. So that you know, we we know that we know that they're going to be looking at these things and making developments. But yeah, the the changes don't come as a surprise when they come. So yeah, for me, it's it's still evolving. Um, I think it is getting. I think it is very good. I think it is getting better all the time. Um, and certainly, when I talk to to people in some some other jurisdictions about how their reporting works and how their governance works, generally there is a there is a certain respect for for the way that we've got in the UK and, and an understanding of, of how that's worked. So, as David said earlier, we don't want to be complacent about that, but I think we're in a fairly good place and getting better all the time. Okay. And maybe, Peter, if I could ask your views on um, some specific requirements where statutory auditors need to formally review compliance. Now, there's only a handful of co-provisions where that's required. Uh, do you think that there, that that should be extended? Is that something that perhaps um, Argo can look at? I think this is a really difficult one. I think there are. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing the consultation go through about audit and corporate governance and, and restoring trust. I I think there are some ideas about things that that auditors can look at in more detail. I think there are some. There are some significant issues about quality in the audit market that probably need to be addressed as part of that and perhaps in some ways before that. Um, I always find it rather dispiriting when I see the, the annual report come out saying the, you know, the percentage of, of audits that the FRC is rating as being a, a sort of not requiring significant change. Um, never seems to seventy percent or so. Never seems to be quite enough to me. Uh, I, would have, I would have hoped it was more like ninety percent didn't need significant change. But so I think there are things that can be done there. I'm, for me, I would say they're probably not a first order improvement that we need to make at the moment. And I think also we need to be extremely careful. I mean, people have been talking about replicating the, the Sarbanes-Oxley model in the UK, for example. I think we need to be enormously careful about the scope of that and enormously careful about the amount of cost that that, you know, that may pile on to companies. Um, and, you know, sort of perhaps do a bit of a cost-benefit analysis to see whether the benefits that we get from that justify the cost. Okay, I'm going to pick up on that point specifically, and maybe um, David for 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 your views. And 
If I look at, um, I, I'll say there's been a lot of press speculation. So clearly we haven't heard from Bayes yet and, and unlikely to hear toward, um, from them until towards the end of the year or maybe early next year in terms of their way forward. But the speculation has been that uh, the move towards an internal control reporting framework, similar to, to Sarbanes-Oxley in the US, is now uh, unlikely to be introduced through legislation but could be introduced via the code. Um, if this is the way forward, and as an advocate of the UK's uh, corporate governance code, are you confident that it will have the power to drive the desired improvements in financial reporting and a more robust internal controls framework? Thanks, Michelle. Well, you'll understand, of course, I can't comment on the on the speculation. But, okay. I mean, this is one of those areas down the years where governments have had to consider where where legislation and where regulation and where code-based or principles-based processes work best. So, so if you look at the way that company law and associated regulation and, and codes are, are, are structured, um, it means that, you know, you have um, the, the, the Companies Act, which sets out how you construct a company and, and, how it, and how it works is there. And then falling out of that, you have regulations which control uh, how companies, different sorts of companies report on different sorts of issues. And you also have the listing rules and, and the DTRs as well, which deal with some of that. And then you have also the codes, which the uh, Financial Reporting Council are, uh, are responsible for. And it's a decision for governments to, of, of where uh, the different elements uh, go. Um, one, of the, one of the examples um, down the years has been remuneration. So, um, uh, you know, in in the law, um, it's it's made clear that companies are there, uh, companies and shareholders decide the remuneration. Then the regulations uh, talk about accountability to shareholders, voting, uh, and what companies actually um, uh, are transparent about in terms of the which, which Peter has referred to in terms of the in terms of the detail that's that's there. And what the code uh, asks companies to do uh, is to follow certain principles and ask the remuneration committee. Uh, to report on on what it's doing, how it set targets, why these are relevant to 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 the company. Have you met the targets? What what are the outcomes? Those sorts of things. So, so you know that's a decision that government has to take when it comes to um, uh, a internal control procedure and, and and where that fits within the regulatory regulatory system and make and make make those decisions. Okay. But Peter, I mean, from from your perspective, um, I think it's fair to say that we don't see a lot of con internal control issues reported by companies unless it's something which is very public and it's all be already been, be, been reported. And there is a requirement under the, um, under the, 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 the current requirements for companies to report um, any internal control, um, I'll say, issues. So, do you think is if we go down? I say it, it's, it, it's it's only speculation, but if we go down the route of these requirements being incorporated through the code, do you think we'll see a change in in um, internal control matters being reported by companies? I don't think we'll see a vast change because I think one of the one of the benefits of having had a, a system for internal controls in in place for so long since since Turnbull and before. Um, is that I think a lot of organisations do their internal controls quite well. And a lot of those internal controls are already tested, particularly, particularly in terms of the, um, the, the, the sort of in the, 
financial section of the report and accounts are already tested by the auditors. So I think I think we'll see we may see some increase, but I think generally companies do internal controls pretty well. Um, the the challenge here is the the degree of extra work that they will need to go through to to get those reports in a position where they can be externally verified. And I think that yeah, in, in some areas, in some in some companies, that is going to be more of a challenge than, than perhaps is appropriate. Okay, thank you. Well, time will tell what um, uh, what will happen once, uh, and we'll see that once Bayes release their, their their report. Maybe looking um, looking to the future and the next um, round of corporate governance challenges. Maybe starting with you, David. Any any ideas where you think these will come from? Well, I think um, we've we've mentioned some already, um, but particularly the link between environmental factors, social factors, and uh, and governance factors are is a, is a continuing challenge. Uh, and each company will need to face this uh, individually. And what I mean by that is that that they have to consider the risks associated. They have to consider proportionality. They have to consider um, materiality, and it will be different for different companies and that goes back to the flexibility point that Peter and I have been talking about. Um, one of the changes in the future which was proposed in the in the white paper and is very very relevant uh, to this discussion I was going to briefly mention it earlier is that is that the uh, FRC's powers in terms of the quality reporting quality or um, uh, our corporate reporting review function uh, will extend um, to the corporate rep governance report. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, that goes forward, I'm going to be writing to companies and telling them that they haven't got their governance right. But what it does mean to say, if, if the proposal is accepted, is that we will have the opportunity to write to companies, as we now do, about their financial statements and the, uh, their narrative reporting, but also their governance reporting, and saying, for example, that the quality of an explanation in a particular area um, wasn't um, wasn't good enough, and that, that it should be um, um, the company should have another go. So, so that's um, that is an important development which which may come through from the uh, reforms that are currently under consideration. Peter, anything you would add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with I agree with what David said. Um, I think one of the one of the strengths of being able to do that will be that at the moment there kind of isn't anything that, that David and the FRC can do in the event that an explanation is poor. And, you know, being frank, we do sometimes see some fairly poor explanations as to why a company has diverged from the code. It's an opportunity, as I keep saying, for, for companies to tell their story, to explain why they're diverging from the code and, and to demonstrate that they really thought about it. So for me, the, the opportunity for the for Arga to write to companies and perhaps even publicize um, that, you know, we didn't think your explanation about why you'd done X was was good enough. Please do better next time. It it creates a it creates a, a, a sort of a spectrum of sanction. Which I think is I think is really useful, and at the moment there just isn't. But it's worth also pointing out the role that investors have to play in all of this, because these the the governance statements are are, are there. Obviously, they're public statements, but they're the basis on which uh, many investors engage with companies. And of course, now investors uh, are also in the spotlight because they have to apply uh, to become. Um, 
signatures to the stewardship code. Uh, the stewardship code was revised in 2020 and sets a much higher standard for what we expect from investors in terms of engagement and stewardship. And as you will have seen a couple of months, two, three months ago, we released our first list of success, successful signatories. So it's uh, there's a focus, strong focus on companies, obviously, as it always has been, but also uh, a strong focus on our investors and, and, and how they engage with companies and the subjects that they engage with companies on. Uh, and um, what actions that they take. Cool. The, Michelle, if I may, I think the, the other thing that is really important and is linked to that and hopefully we'll see more of going forward is perhaps slightly greater um, linkage between what Arga are doing and what is being done, for example, the FCA. Um, I mean, it seems to me that we've got a regulator that focuses on reporting. So, yeah, that should be going forward, something that is dealt with at Arga and not at the FCA. The FCA have got other, other purposes which I think they should be focused on. Um, but it does mean then that if you've, if you've got those two separate regulators with separate purposes working together, um, actually, I think we'll be stronger overall. Uh, I couldn't agree more, Peter. Clarity of clarity of responsibilities, and yeah. we've said many times with all the changes which which are needed across the uh, the whole ecosystem. The best way to achieve that is to have companies, regulators, uh, auditors all working together to yeah. achieve a better outcome. Um, and and I think both both yourself and David have have absolutely uh, summarised extremely well. Um, you know, how that needs to work. Um, uh, maybe time for one final question um, to, to both of you. And I know we do have a number of board members who listen to our, our podcast. So perhaps some advice to them. What one or two questions should board members uh, be asking of management to help improve the quality of corporate governance reporting? Uh, perhaps, um, Peter, if we start with you. Yeah, I think the... I think it's important that the board members read the report um, and, and think about what is being reported. I mean, I'm sure they do all read the report because they're, they're responsible for it. But think about what is being reported. Does this tell the company's story? Um, is this fair, balanced and understandable? Does it, yeah, is it, is it warts and all in terms of the, um, in terms of the company's performance throughout the year? Is it something that will provide insight to, um, to stakeholders, to investors, to potential investors? Um, what value are we adding by, by sort of putting this piece of information in the report? How does that work? And I think, I think for me, the, the role of the board primarily in looking at the report is that, that sort of extra pair of eyes, that non-management pair of eyes, looking at what's in the report, questioning some of it, and perhaps driving sometimes a bit more transparency um, because, you know, it's it's very easy when you're writing a report um, to think in terms of, well, do I really need to say this? Well, perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll not bother with that. Great. David, would you add anything? Yes, I would. I mean, um, we're just about to produce our annual governance uh, survey and that will be coming out. Uh, and that, um, again, talks about the quality that we've talked about today, um, the improving quality of governance uh, reporting, but also the areas where we need to develop. So I would advise everyone to, to, to read that. Uh, it focuses on the high quality reporting and it talks about areas for, for, 
for improvement. And I think there's always the question there now that the environmental social factors are, are coming much, much more to the fore uh, for boards to question senior management on whether they're getting the right information uh, in order to make their decisions. So, so for if I pick the workforce as an example, because it's specifically set out in the, in the code, you know, what is the feedback from the workforce? Because that really uh, tunes into corporate purpose and corporate strategy and, and how that is delivered. And that can only be achieved if the board are making uh, um, a board and a, an effective decision-making body. So, so it's a question of looking at the, at the information from senior management and making sure that you're, you're getting the right information. Well, that's all we have time for in today's podcast, and we've certainly covered a lot of ground. David and Peter, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. It's great to hear your take on what is a very important topic. My key takeaways today are, firstly, the UK is doing a pretty good job in terms of corporate governance reporting, but there's always room for some improvement. Uh, we've spoken a lot today about telling the story, not being generic and boilerplate, but really explaining actions and outcomes which are specific to a company. Uh, there's also more requirements coming down the track, uh, particularly around ESG. So it's important that directors think about that and whether they've got the right information to report. And also, uh, David, you've mentioned a few new reports coming out from the FRC, which are really helpful to uh, to really to take a temperature and make sure that good practices are recognised, but also where there are areas for improvement. And specifically, you've mentioned the report on uh, compliance with the weights principles. We have many more guests in future episodes who, like David and Peter, are passionate about good governance. So please do subscribe to our podcast to get alerted when new episodes are published. Thank you and goodbye for now.